Welcome, everyone, to Bar Talk, the official podcast of the North Carolina State Bar. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez. We have a special treat for you uh, today. This is actually the first of a two-part series on legal judicial trailblazers, where we interview Justice Robin Hudson, uh, Judge Lillian Jordan, and Judge Linda McGee about their experiences and judicial background. Um, This is part one. Uh, Be sure to also listen to part two of this special, uh, where the guests, guests continue their discussion. As I mentioned, we've got uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court represented uh, by Judge Robin Hudson. She's been a justice here for 16 years uh, on the Supreme Court. I think her term ends at the end of the year, sadly. So we'll be uh, we'll be losing her. But she's been a wonderful, a wonderful uh, justice and and public uh, servant. Um, she went to Yale undergrad and then Chapel Hill uh, for law school, where I think a fair number of our listeners uh, also went. I think born in Georgia, as I understand. It. Interestingly, the first woman elected uh, to the appellate court directly without being appointed first. So that's a that's an accomplishment and one in the record books for you, uh, Justice Hudson. Um, and she's written a lot of important decisions there um, on the Supreme Court and looking forward to hearing about that, uh, that long service. Uh, from the Court of Appeals, we have who I believe is the longest serving appellate judge in the history of North Carolina, at least according to, to my research, I think 26 years on the Court of Appeals in the last six years uh, as chief judge. So glad to have you here, Judge McGee. Um, uh, she is a, a double Chapel Hill undergrad and law school there uh, from Marion, North Carolina. Uh, she's been really involved with the advocating on behalf of the judicial system, uh, working with the state bar, bar association, a lot of stuff through the courts at various levels, in addition to serving uh, as chief judge of the Court of Appeals. Really excited to have you here uh, to Judge McGee. And then representing our trial courts, we have uh, Judge Lillian Jordan, um, a district court judge and longtime emergency district court judge, even after the official uh, service was done. Judge Jordan, uh, a few years ago, won the John B. McMillan Distinguished Service Award, something the State Bar Awards and a lot of our listeners are familiar with, which is quite an honor. Um, understand went to Guilford College and then Wake uh, Uh, for law school, which is a great combination. Um, In addition to her work with the courts, she's been president of North Carolina Legal Services on the IALTA board um, and on the board of law examiners for North Carolina. So a lot of public service in addition to to work as a judge. In doing some reading, I found it interesting when when you got the uh, Judge McMillan Award, uh, Judge Jordan, you indicated uh, that you were grateful for your first husband paying for law school, watching your four boys, and also doing the laundry, which is something, which is something uh, you know that that not too many husbands are doing, particularly then. So I think that's you know that that's an interesting background. And let me start with you, Judge Jordan. I'm, I'm curious, and I, I want to hear from all of you. What made you decide to be a judge? How did you get interested in in the judiciary? Well, actually, I never thought about being a judge. I practiced uh, family law for about 17 years, and my husband died of ALS, the one you mentioned, Mm -hmm. and he was a lawyer. We were law partners. It actually became harder instead of easier going to our office every day, Mm -hmm. and our judicial um, district changed. More County was added to Randolph and Montgomery, and we were going to get a new judge appointed. And some of the lawyers encouraged me to ask for that appointment. And I thought, 
you know, that's probably what I need to do at this time in my life. (laughs) And so I did. I asked him, uh, uh, Governor Hunt appointed me. And Governor Hunt, by the way, was in the same law class with my former husband, with Tom O'Brien, the one who died at the ALS. That's great. Mm -hmm. How about you, Justice Hudson? What what made you, did you know you, did you always know you wanted to be a judge? What what inspired you to take that path? It never occurred to me that I would ever um, be a judge. In fact, when I went to law school, I'm not sure I had a very clear idea of what lawyers even did. I didn't know any lawyers. There were no lawyers in our family. Um, I just, when I was an undergraduate at Yale, everybody was going to go either to med school or law school or graduate school. And (laughs) I was clearly not going to med school and law school. I I had some idea that you could be a lawyer and make a contribution in your community, um, do some, some good work and, and make an independent living. And that all appealed to me, even though my picture wasn't all that clear, but it never dawned on me to ever aspire even to be a judge, never crossed my mind, but I sort of backed into a career doing a lot of workers' comp litigation, representing textile workers all over the state in the 70s with um, breathing um, problems from um, inhaling cotton dust in the mills. And of course, there were mills all over North Carolina then. It was a big, huge industry. And not very many lawyers would take the cases. And so there were about a dozen of us around the state who would take the cases and you have to litigate them one at a time. And the Industrial Commission is a class mechanism over there. And so... We had hundreds of, of hundreds of cases all over the state that we lost the first 30 or so cases <laughs> that we tried in the industrial commission. Mm. And um, we kept looking at the, the law and looking at our record and thinking that the law sure seemed to cover our clients. And so we appealed and we ended up winning almost all of the cases in the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court. This was in, I think, the first time I argued in the Supreme Court was in 1980 or 81. Um, and at some point along in there, the clerk, the court of appeals at the time told me that our little law firm of two people had more appeals pending than any other law firm in the state. Wow. Because we had to do them one at a time. So we had, and that was in the days before word processing and before you could use the transcripts, you had to narrate the records on appeal. But the, the, the long and short of it is that I got a ton of appellate experience <laughs> because out of, out of necessity because we lost. Um, and so, but we ended up winning. And so I got a whole lot of appellate experience. And at some point, you know, I kept doing that throughout the 25 years that I practiced law. Um, there were a couple of openings on the Court of Appeals. And, um, and some of my colleagues said, you know, you've got all this, you know, hundreds of appeals under your belt. Why don't you try to get appointed to the Court of Appeals? So I wrote to the governor and Governor Hunt, and mm-hmm. he interviewed me, and people wrote nice letters. and. Um, I didn't get appointed. <laughs> so it wasn't for lack of time. Um, but then two years later, one of the judges announced that he was not going to run when his seat was up. And so one of my friends, who was very politically savvy, had called me after the governor didn't appoint me and, and said, you know, the governor is not going to appoint you. Um, and I was like, what do you mean? I have all this great experience. <laughs> right. and, um, and he said, well, because you can't do anything for the governor. You've spent all of your career representing people with no money and no connections and no clout. You can't do anything for the governor. So he's not going to appoint you. Um, the governor won't pick you, but the people will. You should just run. And so I did. I ran for an open seat. And I didn't know until after that election in 2000, when I ran for the Court of Appeals, that I was the first woman to do that without having been appointed. Yeah. Probably would have been much more anxious about the outcome that I've known, but that's how it it happened. It was sort of one of those things I never could have predicted. um, And I served on the Court of Appeals for six years and loved every minute of it. 
it was a wonderful, wonderful place to serve. And then there was an open seat on the Supreme Court in 2006, and I, I ran for that. You went to that. That's great. Yeah, that's a great. Have, that, talk about a trailblazing story. I love that. Well, from, you know, without the connections or the, you know, I think people think, oh, judges are all politically connected and all, you know, connected. I, I think, I just think that story is great, right? You had the experience, but it wasn't, there was no, great political, you know, it was just, you had it and ran for it and, and the people were great. Well, and it's, um, my mother grew up in New Orleans and one of her favorite sayings was from an old New Orleans song that goes to show you never can tell. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> just sort of the story of my life. <laughs> but it's been a real, the honor of my life to be able to serve on the Supreme Court for the last 16 years. And it has gone just like that. Mm -hmm. I'm just astonished that I'm only a few weeks away from it being over, um, yeah. it's been, I've done the very best I can. And we've had some really difficult and complicated um, matters to tackle. And that's that's what appealed to me about it, was being able to put all of that experience to work. As I know that, that Judge McGee and Judge Jordan have felt the same way, that that's what we do. We, we're problem solvers. That's the goal. Um, and it's been a real honor to do that. Absolutely, thanks. Judge McGee, is my memory right? Were you appointed by Governor Hunt? I won't. <laughs> okay, so we got, we got two Hunt appointees and one that he refused to appoint that ran, ran and got elected anyway. How did you how did you end up becoming a judge? I know it was a while ago. Tell us the story. Well, I'll make it unanimous here. I had no idea about the possibility of being a judge. I did want to go to law school. Um, way back when, when I was watching Perry Mason on TV, I thought the idea of being able to take your knowledge, your, you know, your what your learned experiences, and and uh, win cases for individuals, and uh, be an important part of the community. What more could you ask for, and you know your life? And so I wanted to be a, a lawyer since I was maybe twelve years old or so. And uh, then I practiced law in Boone, uh, at a small town law firm, and loved it. Wonderful partners. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of my partners uh, later became president of the North Carolina State Bar. That's Tony DeSantis. Oh, yeah. I loved and Andrea Capua, um, she's also a member of the firm, and, you know, she's now on the State Bar Council. So we had, um, they were generous enough to me, basically, to uh, support me in the possibility of becoming a judge. But the only reason I even considered it was because I got a telephone call from a woman who was in the General Assembly and said that there's an opening at the Court of Appeals, and would you be interested? Well, I laughed real loud, <laughs> and uh, then she reminded me, and and I, I suspect both of us are aware of this situation, that was, um, that was way back in the mid-90s, and the NC Association of Women Attorneys had been formed, I don't know, 10 or 12 years before that time, and one of the goals was, of course, we thought we needed to have more women on the bench. Sure. And she reminded me of that and said, now, uh, please consider the fact that, you know, you uh, your first career was as executive director of the NC Academy of Trial Lawyers. So you got to know lawyers all across the state. And she said, that seems like a natural, you know, if you're going to be running statewide. And with her encouragement and then, quite frankly, with the support of my husband and by then we had two sons and my law partners in Boone. I said, yes, I, I would like to, to take that on and, and let's see what we can do with it. And I had an interview with the governor, too. It was on a cold <laughs> night in, uh, just, uh, excuse me, in January. And um, it was so relaxed. And I felt so good about it. I thought, well, this has just been very nice. I appreciate this, governor. But I didn't expect anything to come from it, quite frankly. 
And then it was like a month later and I got a call fairly late in the evening. Actually, my uh, got two calls. Uh, my youngest son took the first call and basically was talking and, you know, sounding very happy with the person on the phone. And, and then he hung up and uh, uh, my husband asked him who that was. And he said that was somebody telling me they were the governor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, so uh, I, I made a quick telephone call. But but for another woman who was interested in having more women on the bench, and she had run for the the uh, state senate was in the state senate, I would not have been given that opportunity. Quite frankly, yeah, it's great. Well, and I have to say that Judge McGee was an inspiration to those of us who came not that far behind. But um, when when Judge McGee and Judge Timmons Goodson were serving on the Court of Appeals was when I decided to run. They were the only two mm-hmm. women there at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it was a real, it was an inspiration to, to me for sure. Would you, we may have listeners that maybe before this podcast hadn't really thought about being a judge, but, or maybe they've toyed with it. You know, it, Would you recommend it as a, you know, as a career? I know you all were practicing lawyers, you know, first, and that's where most of our listeners are doing. You know, what, what tips would you give? I'll just, I'll start with you. Judge Jordan, what do you think? Yes, I would recommend that people think about being a judge and men as well as women, although I'm glad that we have more and more women on the bench. Um, It's an interesting career and you do get to um, meet a lot of different people. Actually, it helped, believe it or not, during COVID when we were isolated and at home or whatever, because you're isolated as a judge. You don't go out to lunch with the lawyers. You are, you know, in your in the bench, you know, you're in your office or whatever. And so it's sort of a lonely experience in a way. And I think you have to look at it that way. But it really came in handy when I couldn't, when I had to stay home and do nothing <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> but um, the other thing is, as an emergency judge, which I was for mm-hmm. I think about fifteen or sixteen years, and traveling all over the state and meeting all the different lawyers, that was. Probably the highlight, because sometimes if you spend years and years with the same lawyers in front of you, you, you learn all their tricks <laughs> and, and all the things that they try to, to get by with. But it's really good. And and different bars, you find out, have different personalities. Some of them, they're very close with each other and get along great. And some of them, is, you know, not so <laughs> They don't get along all that great. But um, being an emergency judge really was one of the best things I think I ever did as far as my personal enjoyment, meeting all the people in the courthouses, all the clerks and all those people as well as the lawyers. And I would highly recommend that anyone who has any interest and uh, it's not highly, um, you have to have a certain demeanor, I think. And you you don't need to be very volatile. So if you have that kind of demeanor, I I think it's a good thing. That's great. Justice Hudson, a little different experience on the Court of Appeals and then the Supreme Court. But what what would you tell folks maybe considering that as a career change or an option? Well, I you know I I never thought about it until I had quite a few years of experience under my belt, and because I always thought, I always felt like it was important to have experience and kind of know my way around the courtroom before I thought about doing it from the other side and. Um, having that experience on the, the OSHA review board was a, a, a really wonderful little way to, to learn what that might be like. Um, I'm not sure I ever would have 
cross that bridge mentally had that not happened. Um, but it's a really wonderful way to kind of give back through your experience and turn yourself into a problem solver um, when you're at the appellate level, especially. Um, and I, I thoroughly, if, if people like to do that and solve puzzles and complicated problems, um, being an appellate judge is, is wonderful. It is, it's very solitary. It's very academic because um, you spend, you know, 90% of your time reading and researching and writing. So if you don't really love to do those things, you would hate being an appellate judge <laughs> because there's an awful lot of it. But if you do and like to put that to work into crafting a solution, it's absolutely wonderful. It's very, very um, the, the Supreme Court, especially, and one of the things I hadn't thought about until I got to the Supreme Court is how much more complicated it is to get something accomplished when you have seven people mm. rather than three. Yeah. <laughs> because on the Court of Appeals, when you serve in panels of three, you only have to have one other person to agree with you in order mm -hmm. to reach a decision, whereas that's not true on the Supreme Court. You have seven people, you have to have four, and you have to hang on to them. Um, and Justice Irvin and I used to joke about trying to keep the frogs in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> so you have to craft what you write to not lose people along the way. Um, and that can be really complicated. But and that, that work was the most challenging and difficult work I ever have done in my entire career. But it's also when you feel like you've reached, um, sort of gotten it right, it's very, very satisfying. Yeah, that's neat. Anything you want to add on being a judge, Judge McGee? Well, Lillian, I didn't realize that 17 years was the time frame for you, too. And I had practiced law for 17 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite frankly, I was in the courtroom most days and <laughs> thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but I'd also done some family law and uh, was thinking about, you know, maybe it's time for me to be doing something a little different. And so mine just happened to hit it perfect timing, quite frankly. But, you know, none of the three of us were really politically active. And a lot of lawyers are. You know, uh, it's, I know we all have political backgrounds and things that we feel, of course, that uh, we want to support. And But we didn't choose to go in that direction. I think it's very important that we keep elected positions like for the legislature and for the uh, executive branch very separate from what we do at, at the uh, judicial branch. And so perhaps if, if you're interested in public service, but the political end of it is not what you want to focus on, it's a particularly good thing to consider doing. And going back in time, my idea of being able to take my teenage year idea of being able to take, you know, your education, uh, your experience and put it for the benefit of others. And then being able to have the chance to do it on a uh, for the at least the two appellate courts, a statewide level um, is just exceptional. Uh, the kinds of things that we focus on. I, we used to kid about being uh, the general practice of law, the Court of Appeals. You know, that's what we were. The um, opportunity that you have to uh, take your experiences, understanding though that you're not basically looking out for an overall goal that you set for yourself in terms of uh, this is a policy I think we ought to put into place, or this is what I think our country ought to be doing, or our state ought to be doing. That's not what you're doing, and that's not what you um, can accomplish. What you can accomplish is working on one set of facts with one potential person involved or one business or one entity, and that's what you focus on. That's where you can put your abilities and your talent and your experience to work. 
to find the determination at the at the appellate court level of whether or not there may have been a mistake made in the case. Something so serious that, in fact, that person needs another or that entity or organization needs another opportunity to have a fair hearing. That's an exceptional chance. And you do it over and over. And one of the things that struck me when I got to the Court of Appeals, which is that the schedule of the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court is sort of like the school year. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the court year starts in August, you know, when new clerks come in and the new calendars come out. You, you don't have oral arguments in the summer mm-hmm. for at least, a couple, at least a few weeks on both courts. Um, and you have, you know, long stretches where there's no arguments at the holidays. And that's a... You don't have that kind of schedule in private practice. You know, you don't get those kind of those kind of breaks to sort of regroup and think. Um, whereas you do, as, as an appellate court judge, you have plenty of opportunities to to, to think things through carefully, um, which is a real treat. And the trial court level is completely different, right? right. You don't yeah. get time. You don't get summer breaks. Right? Don't get summer breaks, especially on the district court. I think probably more so than the. Uh, superior court it is you have to want to work and it is a hard job you don't just because you have court every day and maybe a different you know juvenile court one day criminal court one day family court might usually last a week because those cases are more complicated and take longer so you you really do have to work every day and some days you work um some people complain. I always like to get through. So sometimes at seven o'clock, I'm still holding court. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't go over too well with the works <laughs> and people. But you just have to somehow. Mm-hmm. I always had huge admiration for district court judges who decided to run statewide for the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court because, like you said, they're in the courtroom all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Whereas those of us who were at the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court, we don't have court every day. We have it for a few days a month, maybe. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time, you know, you can go to events in the evening on the weekends. And but for it's a whole other full-time job on top of being in the courtroom every day. And I was always extremely admiring of the district court judges who I thought had the hardest job in the courthouse anyway. <laughs> and we used to say, you know, when we go to the Superior Court judges and the District Court judges conferences, you know, we we tried our best to say we understand what you're going through and <laughs> what you're dealing with. And you know, we're proud of you and we're thankful that you know that you do it so well. Because, you know, when you look at the percentages of the cases that are affirmed or found no error, you know, it's, it's just a tremendous, I think, tribute to the trial court judges. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's true. <clears throat> I'm interested. Obviously, there are, we're getting some more women in judicial offices, but you are all at the very kind of cutting edge of that in terms of, of being there. What is Was it different in some ways being a woman or one of only few women? Um, and were you treated differently? Were there different experiences? I'm interested in, you know, sharing any any of those kind of maybe more unique challenges that you may have encountered. You know, I think we've always been very proud of the fact that the trial court numbers, uh, at least in district court, were growing quickly. And uh, the numbers for the appellate courts grew relatively quickly after about the mid-90s. Uh, you know, our, our numbers started increasing. The one place that we have difficulty with, though, is the Superior Court bench. And a lot of that is based on the fact that they tend to travel quite a bit, and many um, many times women are perhaps not in, in a time in their life that they feel comfortable in being able to be away from home on an extended basis, perhaps. And so we've always had difficulty being able to to uh, encourage women to do that. Uh, I think in large cities, you know, that's not 
quite true. You know, they're able to be in their area more on a regular basis. But in uh, the eastern and western parts of the state, it's just difficult to be able to get women who are uh, in a time in their life that they feel that, that they mm-hmm. can be on the bench. In terms of um, different treatment, uh, I can remember um, getting more different treatment probably in the trial courts than I ever did <laughs> in the Court of Appeals. Uh, because in the trial courts, sometimes it was perhaps the first time they'd seen a woman in their courtroom. And they just sort of made some assumptions, like, unfortunately, many people, you know, we tend to assume certain things, and they would sort of assume you were either a, a secretary or you were coming with a, mm-hmm. someone else in the firm, or you were someone from the clerk's office, you know. You, but um, that took a while. But I suspect maybe all three of us probably got to know the people in the, tr- in, in, in the courthouse who really make a difference, and that is the clerk's office, the registered deeds office, and quite frankly, the judges. And... I expect that we all had, you know, uh, positive treatment from those people. And we understood that they could make or break our uh, success and and, um, our our trial work, at least. And so, you know, you get to know those people. I did not have um, negative responses, fortunately, at the Court of Appeals. Uh, I was the only woman there at the time, but there have been other women before. And I think it was a matter of people just seeing that you were doing the work. Yeah. That you were there, that you were paying attention, that you were involved, that you were interested, that you were willing to volunteer for things and and be involved. And so I don't know that I had experiences that would have been any, any different from the the men that were there. And, and interesting, mm-hmm. North, North Carolina historically has sort of an interesting place in the whole you know picture, which is that when I started practicing law in the seventies. Um, the chief justice of the state supreme mm-hmm. court was Susie Sharp, yeah. who was the mm-hmm. first woman. Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court in the country, and Naomi Morris was Chief Judge on the Court of Appeals. Um, So we had women leading both of the appellate courts that long ago. And although, interestingly, neither of them was particularly supportive of our effort. (laughs) (laughs) No, they were not. The steering committee that formed the Association (laughs) of Women Attorneys in 1977-78, I think it was actually founded in 78, Mm -hmm. Um, we approached various people in the bar um, leadership for assistance in, in that endeavor. And um, particularly Chief Justice Sharp was not particularly supportive, shall we say. Oh, no. <laughs> why, why I'm curious, why, think, why not? What well, was her... I think her, her attitude was that she hadn't needed it and so we didn't need her. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I made it. Everybody else can make their own. I, um, although a lot of people don't have the advantages that she did of practicing under the wing of her father and you know having him bring her along that way. But I, I, I think that at the time, when you were doing that work in the late 70s, there were a number of women practicing law. The numbers were increasing pretty rapidly. But wherever we were, if you were in a legal aid office or a law firm or a DA's office or something, you were probably the only woman or one of only a, one or two. And so we thought there was a need for a, a networking opportunity for the women practicing law to be able to get together and share stories and be supportive. And I think it's turned out to be a wonderful organization that does exactly that. It's a very, has a very different feel mm-hmm. from the other voluntary bar organizations. And, and you were president. Yeah, yes. I was going to say there is a connection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were all on the board of directors of the women attorneys wow. and then they were both still on the board when I was president. And so we, we okay. have that connection. But um, the, how you were treated, going back to the um, most outstanding thing that happened. We were in Superior Court answering calendar one day, 
And I was there, and one of my college uh, law school classmates was practicing there. And um, she stood up to answer the calendar, and the Superior Court judge said, Young lady, I do not allow secretaries to answer the calendar in my courtroom. And I'll tell you who got who was so upset about it were the male lawyers. Mm-hmm. They were so upset. This, anyway, I won't say anything about the judge. <laughs> but that was the most obvious thing, I guess, event I ever saw where there was some type of prejudice or whatever against women. And that was early on. That was probably in 1980 or 81 because I graduated in 79. But then I had an advantage. It was Ashborough. It's a small town. My husband had practiced law there for 15 years, and he was very well respected. So I was treated like a queen almost. I was mm. the only female lawyer until Karen okay. came at, at, uh, a year later, I guess. Mm. And um, and they all just were almost too nice. And I, I know the first day I practiced, I actually had a case in district court that I so I went into the judges. Everybody always meets in the judges' chambers there. I guess they do everywhere and talk and carry on all the lawyers. And I walked in and everybody, most people were seated, maybe one or two sit. And one man, Hugh Anderson, stood up and sit and offered his seat. And I said, Hugh, I plan to be here for a long time. And don't get up every time I walk in the room to give me your seat. I can stand just like everybody else. <laughs> and in that same that same day, I'll just have to tell the stories. You probably have heard of Otway Burton. Uh, <laughs> the yes. one that appealed everything. He was one of our notorious lawyers. And another lawyer, Dean Bell, Dean started telling the story. Dean's son is here on, on the uh, bar council now. Oh, great. And uh, anyway, Dean started telling a story, and he got to the word pregnant. Otway said, now, Dean, there's a lady present, and we can't be telling those <laughs> And I said, Mr. Burton, I have been pregnant four times. I know exactly what that word means. Please tell your your joke, and don't let me be someone to interfere with whatever you do, wherever you are. I'm just a lawyer like the rest of you. I love it. That's hilarious. I have one funny story I have to share. that um, When I was in the 70s, I was probably 25, 26. I did a lot of Social Security disability cases that were sort of offshoots of my workers' comp practice. Mm-hmm. And those were in federal court if you mm-hmm. got past the hearing stage and you were still denied. But it was all paper. You had summary judgment motions. And I had a, an argument set on Social Security disability case in federal court in Rutherford. Oh, yeah. This was in probably 1977 or 78. And when um, they called my case, the judge, who was a pretty older gentleman at the time and i come start to walk up and the judge i kid you not said let the record reflect i was afraid he was going to have a heart attack counsel for the plaintiff is a woman (laughs) (laughs) that's great (laughs) you know i hate to say this but i think that person was on my um uh three person quote-unquote panel when I was being considered for the bar oh. uh, because I was from McDowell County and of course, right, well, we called it Ralston County. Right, right. So it's next door. I'm pretty sure he must have been the same one. And he was very concerned whether or not I was going to come back and practice in his district. So <laughs> could have been the same. I bet it individual. was. Well, the other thing that happened to me that 
I thought of when you were telling your story about the use of the word pregnant. My first jury trial was in September of 1979, and my son was due in October of 1979. I had a week-long jury trial in Wake County, and I was very, very pregnant. And the judge did not have any use for women practicing law, let alone in his courtroom, and certainly not in the shape I was in. (laughs) He was pretty appalled every day (laughs) and made a pretty miserable experience. I did win, um, it was a uh, speaking of winning, uh, winning. I have to say the fact that uh, the NC Association of Women Attorneys not only um, uh, was supportive of, of uh, women, but we eventually uh, formed a judicial branch, a huh? uh, judicial division. And uh, that judicial division was honored to give to uh, Justice Hudson the Appellate Judge of the Year Award just a few weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. A huge honor. Oh. So many colleagues for such a long time. I really appreciate that very much. And one thing I want to say about the the women attorneys and the judicial division is that um, one of the things that the main project of the judicial division, aside from that award, is that they send a team of judges to all of the law schools in North Carolina every year and have women judges panels. We've been doing it for 25 25 years. years. And um, every we go to try to go to every one of the law schools every year. The handful of judges who can tell their story about how they got to the bench and encourage the law students at that early stage to be thinking about what it might like to be a judge. And um, I've been on many of those in the last 20 years. And um, I, I, more and more, there are law students, who, women who are already thinking that they might want to be a judge. And so it has had the desired effect of getting law students to be thinking down the road about what it might like to be. Be, be like to be a judge, um, especially women. And we have men too at this program. Yes. Well, that brings part one of this special podcast to a close. Be sure to listen to our second part where we continue the discussion uh, with all three judges.